just want to take these three verses. These are really important verses, and uh, I was going to skim over them in last week's message and decided, no, I need to need to focus on these because these are really uh, important verses for all of us in our walk with the Lord. Starting in verse 24, Jesus is speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, <clears throat> unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Uh, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I uh, wrestled with the title of this message, and it occurs to me that if I wanted it to appeal to a wide audience, I probably should have picked a different title than uh, Why You Should Hate Your Life. I mean, for one thing, let's face it, that's a downer. Uh, It's just not a happy title, and there's enough gloom and doom in this world already, so why pick a a title that's a downer? For another thing, I doubt if many of you this past week just scratched your head and said, you know, I'm really wrestling with how can I hate my life uh, a little more than I already do. It's just not a popular thought. And, uh, you know, it also, of course, doesn't help build our self-esteem. And we all know from all the Christian books out there that that's the main goal in the Christian life is to build your self-esteem, don't we? Uh, I hope you understand I'm being facetious there. I do not agree with the self-esteem movement. But let me tell you why I think why you should hate your life is a good title for a sermon. And the reason is because Jesus said that we should do it. And if we're Christians, we follow Jesus, right? And Jesus said you should hate your life. And it's not something you're just going to fall into naturally. You know, yeah, it just kind of comes normal to me to hate my life. Uh, No, no, it's something you have to work at daily. You have to think about it. And it's not a, yeah, I did that in camp when I was a kid, and that's taken care of kind of thing. No, it's something you have to work at all of your life. And also, you'll notice that Jesus said, if I hate my life in this world, I'll keep it to life eternal. And so we're not just talking about a little self-help tip here that maybe helps improve your life and, you know, gets your life a little more well-rounded and all of that. No, this is about your eternal destiny. And so nothing could be more important than taking heed to Jesus' words here and understanding what does he mean and how do I apply that to my life? Now, of course, we should never brush aside any of Jesus' teachings, but especially when Jesus repeats something over and over in the Gospels, it ought to say, we ought to say, whoa, I better pay really close attention to this. And Jesus gives us a heads up in verse 24 when he begins with, truly, truly. Uh, 
as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, those are, are words that Jesus used to say, come on, wake up, pay attention, this is really important. Don't miss what I'm about to say. And so, truly, truly, he tells us. And then he proceeds to talk about himself, because he is the grain of wheat who is about to fall into the earth and die. Figuratively speaking, he dies on the cross. And then he is also in that, as I'll explain, our example. And so he applies it to us in verse 25, and then and in the form of a paradox there. And then in verse 26, he gives us a motivational promise as to why we should want to do it. Now, Jesus taught this same truth with slight variation in Matthew 10, 37 to 39, Matthew 16, 24 to 27, Mark 8, 34 to 38, Luke 9, 23 to 26, Luke 14, 27, and again in Luke 17, 33. But let me just cite for you, uh, read for you, Mark 8, 34 to 38, which is basically the same lesson in just slightly different words. It says there, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. So this is a message for everyone. And he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And so Jesus' words here apply to everyone who wants to follow him. He assumes we all want to save our lives, and he tells us the way to save them is to lose them for his sake and the gospel's. And he's talking about saving or losing our lives eternally as is clear by the phrase about the coming in glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so, again, it's just vitally important for all of us to ponder, to think on, to meditate on what what does Jesus mean here and how does it apply to me? And I believe what Jesus is saying in our text is that you should hate your life in this world Because you want to follow Jesus, you want to serve Jesus, you want to be with him forever. And we're going to see three things here. First of all, in verse 24, we see the servant's model, and that is Jesus himself. In verse 25, we see the servant's mandate, and that is that we must hate our lives in this world. And then in verse 26, we see the servant's motivation, and that is... We want to be with Jesus and honored by the Father. So let's look first then at verse 24, which is the servant's model. And that is by laying down his life on the cross, Jesus bore much fruit. Again, to repeat verse 24, 
Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus, of course, is referring there to the cross, which is just a few days away now in history. Um, Jesus is the grain of wheat who fell into the earth and died, so to speak. He died on the cross. And by giving his life as a ransom for many on the cross, uh, Jesus, in the words of Hebrews uh, 2.10, brought many sons to glory. In other words, it was by dying on the cross that Jesus bore much fruit. Now, let me be perfectly clear here. We can never imitate Jesus in his substitutionary death for sinners. Jesus is the unique God-man. He alone could bear the sins of others through his death on the cross. Uh, As we've seen in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the eternal word who took on human flesh. As we saw in John 1.29, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, And so only Jesus could do that. But, having understood that, there is a secondary sense in which his death was an example to us all. Uh, During his short time on earth, Jesus was constantly dying to himself in order to love others, to serve others. We'll see in chapter 13 a great example of that. When Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, takes the basin of water He washes the disciples' feet, and they are shocked by his doing that because that was a servant's job. And Jesus there was showing that it was an example of how we are to lay aside our lives and serve one another in love. And, of course, the culmination of Jesus' dying to himself was literally dying on the cross when he laid down his life there for us. But that's how Jesus bore much fruit. And when we daily learn to die to ourselves to serve others, we will bear much fruit and so prove ourselves to be Jesus' disciples. We will be like him in that sense. So Jesus is our model. He is our example in verse 24. Then in verse 25, Jesus applies his own death on the cross as an example for us when he gives us the servant's mandate. And our mandate is, to follow Jesus, you must hate, not love, your life in this world. Again, verse 25, Jesus says, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Now, in the Greek text, the first two words translated life, there's three words there translated life in English, The first two are the words psyche, which refers to the soul. And then the third is zoe. We get our word zoology from it. That refers to the eternal life that God gives. And so Jesus here is assuming that we all want to keep our lives now, our souls, forever with the Father. And he's telling us here uh, a paradox. He says, the way to keep your life is to lose it. The way to lose your life, your soul, is to love it. And I want to point out that he's not just aiming this at the dedicated few, maybe some who want to go be missionaries and possibly even 
become martyrs for the sake of the gospel. And I say that because sometimes I have heard taught that there are kind of two levels of discipleship. You know, there's the average Christian, he's down here kind of on one level, and then there's the super dedicated level, those who want to follow Jesus and lay down their lives for him. Uh, I'm here to tell you there's only one kind of disciple. Every Christian is a disciple of Christ. Every Christian is called to lose his life for Jesus' sake and the gospel. And uh, it is a daily process. Jesus says here, all that follow him are involved in this process of hating their lives in this world, and they are the ones who keep their lives to life eternal. So, again, it is really crucial to understand what does it mean then to love your life in this world, and what does it mean to hate your life in this world. So let's look at both of those. First of all, to follow Jesus, he says you must not love your life in this world. Three things I would point out about what it means to love your life in this world. First of all, loving your life in this world means that you're living with this life only in view. That's what Jesus means, I think, by in this world, that phrase. Living as if this world is all there is. There's a phrase now that uh, pops up. uh, It's a four-letter acronym, Y-O-L-O. You only live once. You know, you're only going around once, man. Get all the gusto you can. Uh, Get your bucket list and check them off because you can only do these things once. And, you know, it's the the living short-sightedly like, this is it. This life is all there is. There's a best-selling supposedly Christian book called Your Best Life Now, written by the pastor of the largest church in America. And, uh, you know, that title is the stupidest title I've ever read for a Christian book. Supposedly Christian book. Your Best Life Now? You know, do you think Jesus lived his best life now when he suffered abuse at the hands of sinners and went to that horrible cross to bear our sin in his early 30s? Was that his best life now? You think the Apostle Paul lived his best life now when he suffered beatings and imprisonments and the stoning and shipwrecks and and frequent dangers for the sake of the gospel? Was that his best life now? Or what about all the martyrs, if you've ever read church history? People who got their heads lopped off because they wouldn't deny the gospel. People who were burned at the stake because they would not uh, capitulate on the gospel. Were they living their best life now? I mean, if that book was telling us how we can lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel and have our best life now, kind of tongue-in-cheek, amen, preach it, brother. But I've read enough of that book. I know that's not what it's saying. It's telling you how you can get all the stuff and and live in a mansion and have a nice car and have all the the goodies now. And that is totally opposed to what we're studying here. That is totally opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us about a man, in fact, who's living his best life now. The man said to himself in Luke 12, 19, Soul! You have many goods laid up for years to come. Eat, drink, take your ease, eat, drink, 
and be merry. Here's what God said to him in the next verse. You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And then Jesus adds an editorial comment in the next verse. He said, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, those in this world live as if this life is all that there is. And so their aim in life is accumulate as much money and stuff as they can before they die. And you've seen the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. Jesus says, no, he loses. He who dies with the most toys dies, (laughs) and he loses. A second thing about loving your life in this world, it means living for the same things that the people in this world live for. Same values, same attitudes. You say, well, what do the people in this world who don't have Christ live for? Well, John tells us in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. And then he adds, and the world is passing away in its lusts, but he who does the will of God lives or literally abides forever. Now, if greed and accumulating all the stuff in this world is a temptation for you, as it is, I confess, for me, I encourage you to memorize those verses and rehearse them daily as you get bombarded with the world. Because the world daily says to us, if you buy what I'm selling, you'll be happy. And boy... I admit, I like a lot of the stuff they're selling. I like my computer. It helps me, you know, prepare sermons. It helps me get the sermons out there on the web. The internet is a great tool. There's just a lot of the stuff that the world is selling that I go, wow, this is cool. You know, make life easier. Someday I'll probably join the rest of the world and get a smartphone. And if I ever learn how to use the thing, I'm dumb. But if I ever learn how to use a smartphone, I'm sure I will testify it makes life easier. This is a cool tool that helps me. So stuff is nice, but you know, I got to be on guard and not love that stuff. Not love it. Uh, If I love those things as opposed to doing the will of God... John says, the love of the Father is not in me. That's a pretty strong statement. Pretty strong. So living or loving your life in this world means living with this life only in view. It means that you're living for the same things, same values, same attitude as people in this world live for. But thirdly, note that loving your life in this world, Jesus says, is the sure way to lose it. He who loves his life loses it, which is the same thing as we saw in Mark 8, 35. Uh, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, which is the same as gaining the whole world and losing your soul. Now, I I tried to think of how I could say this nicely, and here's the nicest way I can say this. 
people are crazy. Okay? I don't know any way, other way to say it. People are crazy. Let me illustrate what I mean. Many of you have heard me use this illustration because I use it at funerals often. It just has stuck with me over the years, ever since I read it. Back in 1981, a man was flown into the remote Alaskan wilderness so that he could photograph the beauty and all of that of the tundra there. He had with him a lot of photo equipment. He had 500 rolls of film. That was in pre-digital days, of course. He had several firearms. He had 1,400 pounds of uh, uh, goods and supplies to last him for some months there. As the months passed, the entries in his diary began to change. At first, they were caught up in the wonder and the beauty and all of that of being out in this remote spot. But then they kind of turned into a nightmare. And in August, he wrote this. I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. I'll find out soon. Well, he waited, and he waited, and no one came to fly him out of there because this man had made elaborate plans to get in there, but he hadn't thought to make arrangements to get flown out. And so in November of that year, he died by a remote lake out 225 miles northeast of Fairbanks, Alaska, and an investigation confirmed he had planned everything about the trip except his departure. And you're going, duh, you know, that's kind of stupid, isn't it? And yet, how many people do the very same thing? How many people do the same thing? They live their lives, and it's not like death is, you know, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. I mean, death is, the statistics are pretty impressive, right? One out of one. Unless your name is Enoch or Elijah, uh, you know, you're going to die. Pretty sure it's going to happen. You would think people would plan for that. And yet, you know, last week there I was over visiting my dad in a, nursing home, and here are all these people, I I, I don't mean to demean it, but they got one foot in the grave, and you know what they're doing? Watching daytime TV. Sitting there staring at all the stupid TV shows, and they're not reading the Bible and saying, oh God, I'm going to be face to face with you in a short while. God, help me to plan for my departure, to be ready so that I can face the Lord the God of the universe, when I die. I read once about a rich guy that asked to be buried in his Cadillac. So they got a backhoe out and actually lowered the Cadillac in there, you know. He's not driving it today, I'll tell you that. You never see a hearse carrying a U-Haul. You can't take it with you, can you? And so you wonder, well, why don't more people, in fact, why don't more of the Lord's people Take seriously Jesus' words, he who loves his life loses it. He loses it. And so our goals, our our desires, how we spend our money, how we spend our time should not be consumed with this life only, but with a view to eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. Loving your life in this world, he says, it is certain you'll lose it. Now let's look at the flip side. 
Jesus says to follow him, you must hate your life in this world. And you say, well, wow, I mean, are you saying I'm supposed to become a monk and, you know, uh, just eat sparse food and take a vow of poverty and wear hair shirts and sit around chanting Gregorian chants all day long? I mean, am I supposed to not enjoy life? Uh, What does it mean to hate my life in this world? Well, here's my understanding of it. I think it is the same thing as denying ourselves and taking up our cross to follow Jesus, as we saw in Mark 8, as Jesus says also in Luke 9.23. And what that means is this. It means repudiating a self-centered life. Saying no to a self-centered, selfish, pride-filled life. It means... To flip that over, living for God's glory, living for God's purpose, submitting every thought, word, and deed to the Lordship of Jesus so that I'm living daily to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself. And there's only two commands there. Love God, love your neighbor. Loving yourself is the assumed standard. If you can come up to loving others as much as you love yourself, you will have fulfilled the law, Jesus said. And so what what denying myself, hating my life in this world means is saying no to my inherent selfishness and pride. And here are two things to consider about hating your life in this world. First of all, hating your life in this world is not the way, as I understand it, to gain eternal life, but rather it is a characteristic of all who have eternal life. I believe when Jesus says, he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal, he's not describing how to obtain it unless you understand hating your life to mean uh, repudiating all trust in yourself and instead trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation Uh, It could mean that, or that may be included. But I think rather the focus is Jesus is looking at the daily, lifelong process of dying to self as we live for him. And what he is saying is that process is characteristic of all who have trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. It is a fruit of salvation, not the way to it, if you understand what I'm saying. In other words, if you're not daily engaging in the battle of denying yourself, of fighting your selfishness, of pouring contempt on all your pride, as the hymn puts it, then you maybe need to ask, well, have I ever truly repented of my sins and trusted in Jesus? Because Jesus is saying his followers, his disciples, follow him in death to self in order that we might love God and love others. And that's the second thing then to say about this, that hating your life in this world means dying to selfishness in order to love others for Jesus' sake. I think hating your life in this world is the same thing as taking up your cross daily to follow Jesus, as Luke 9.23 says. Now, many Christians have a mixed-up idea about what taking up your cross means. People will say, maybe a wife has a difficult husband, and she says, 
Oh, he's just the cross I have to bear. You know, or sometimes maybe an older person says, Oh, my arthritis and sore back, it's just the cross I have to bear. No, that's not what that is. Because that's involuntary suffering. You didn't choose that. It's thrust upon you. What Jesus is talking about in taking up your cross is actively choosing to embrace something for his sake. And in his day, the cross wasn't an implement of irritation or inconvenience. In fact, it wasn't just an implement of suffering. It was an implement of tortuous death, death to self. You see, when a man took up his cross, for all practical purposes, he was gone. He was dead. There was the place he took it up to where he gets to where they're going to crucify him. But, you know, if you were standing along the way and said, hey, here's a million dollars, doesn't phase him. It's no good to him. He's a dead man. You know, hey, here's a free vacation. Hey, thanks, but I can't enjoy that. I'm, I'm going to the cross. And so it was an implement of death. Taking up your cross or hating your life in this world, to use the words of our text, is not something you achieve in this moment of spiritual ecstasy when you're at camp or whatever, you know, at some emotional service where you can go, yep, did that, done that, it's over. It's a daily thing. And it's a lifelong thing. And I can't ever say, I have finally arrived, I no longer live for myself, now I only live for Christ and for others. Uh, I wish I could get there, but the reality is, pride, selfishness rears its ugly head every day of my life. And I have to go, ah, kill it. Put it to death every day. So there are no quick fixes, no shortcuts. It's never finished. A.T. Pearson put it this way. Getting rid of the self-life is like peeling an onion, layer upon layer, and a tearful process. (laughs) And that's the truth. Jesus' death on the cross, of course, was the supreme act of love in all of human history. And while, as I said, I cannot die to pay for anyone else's sins, nor can you, that example of Christ shows us how daily we are to die to self in order that others may live, that they may come to know Christ, that they may grow in him. In other words, it is an example to us of self-sacrificing love. Um, There are some who deny that love is self-sacrificing, but it seems to me the Bible is clear there is that element of self-sacrifice. Ephesians 5.2, Paul says this, Walk in love, and then he lifts Christ up as our example. Just as Christ also loved you, and how did he love you? And gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He loved us by sacrificing himself. Or Paul applies it to husbands in Ephesians 5.25, a verse I hope all husbands have memorized. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. So again, Christ is our example. 
And in case you're wondering, how did he love us as the church? Paul adds, and gave himself up for her. So love I define as a self-sacrificing commitment that seeks the highest good of the one loved. Our highest good was that we would know God and have eternal life. Jesus laid down his life so that that might happen. The highest good of every other person is that they would know Christ and have eternal life and be conformed to his image. And so love means sacrificing myself for that end, not living for myself. Now, I'm a husband, and I'm going to apply this for a minute to husbands. If you're not a husband, apply it to yourself, okay? It applies to wives, it applies to kids, it applies to single people. But just because I'm a husband, and I see a lot of husbands who muff it on this, I'm going to apply it to husbands, okay? A lot of husbands I encounter think, I'm the head of my home. That's correct, technically. But then they think, that means I'm the king of my home. And kings don't serve. Kings have servants who serve them, right? Go there, do this, get this, bring me that. That's how kings operate. They live for themselves. They make autocratic commands and their servants jump to and meet their needs. And I find a lot of husbands do the same thing. They think, I work hard, I come home, I'm king of the roost. Family, serve me. Let me say to you, being the head of your home doesn't mean you're the king of your home. It means you're the chief servant of your home. And there's a big difference. You're the chief servant. You're to serve your family in love. And that means being sacrificial. I just find a lot of husbands, you know, they want to do something, they do it. They want to buy something, they buy it. Their wife's trying to stretch the grocery budget and he comes home with his latest toy, you know. And she's going, we didn't even talk about that. We didn't discuss our budget. Yeah, well, I needed that. Okay, how was that serving your family? I just see this all over the place. In other words, husbands, you can't live selfishly. And I'm speaking to myself. Oh, sometimes I'm sitting there enjoying something, you know, reading the paper and sipping a cup of coffee and Marla's in the kitchen and, you know, she's busy and harassed and I'm thinking, you know what? I need to serve her. I need to serve her, not sit here and enjoy myself. She needs help. And uh, i got to stop doing what I'm doing and just go in there. And how can I help and be a servant to my wife and when we had kids to our kids? See, hating this life, your life in this world means dying to selfishness so that you can love others for Jesus' sake. You're serving Jesus by serving your family, by serving others. And it almost invariably means, ha, for the short run, I'd rather do my own thing, thanks. And I have to say, no, no, I need to see their need and meet their need. That applies to me when I get interruptions to my schedule. I got things to do. Yeah, but here's a needy person. Okay. You know, looking at it, as Jesus would serve. 
Now, maybe at this point you're saying, why in the world would I want to do that? You know, I mean, why would I want to die to myself and live for Christ and others? And that leads to the servant's motivation. In verse 26, Jesus says that if we serve him and follow him, we'll bear much fruit. And we'll be with him forever, and the Father will honor us. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And then he adds this wonderful promise. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Just two comments. And uh, someone pointed out to me, and he was right, that I should have reversed this. Uh, in, I've got in the minutes, in the notes there, to follow Jesus, you must serve him. But Jesus says rather the reverse. To serve Jesus, you must follow him with the goal of bearing much fruit. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now, Jesus is assuming here all of his people want to serve him. All of his disciples want to serve him. And he adds that if you want to serve him, you have to follow him. He means, of course, obeying his commandments, but in the context... He means following me in dying to self so that you might bear much fruit. That's the context. He's going to tell the disciples in chapter 15, verse 16, I chose you guys so that you might bear much fruit. And if Jesus chose you as his disciple, he chose you so that you would bear fruit. And that means the fruit of the Spirit in your character Your behavior, your use of time, your priorities, all of that is Christian fruit, along with all of the service that we do for him uh, in however you serve him. Then he gives the motivation. He says, if we follow and serve Jesus, we will be with him forever and the Father will honor us. You notice he doesn't say here, he will be with us, although that is true, thankfully. He promises he will be with us, but that's not what he says here. He says, we will be with him. You think, well, what does that mean? Well, in chapter 14, in verse 3, he uses the same phrase exactly. He promises there, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And then here's the phrase, that where I am, you also you may be also. Well, where is that? Well, it's in heaven. He's leaving them to go to heaven. He's promising, I'll come back. I'm going to take you to be with me in heaven, and you will be with me there forever in heaven. And that should be sufficient reward for any of us, for any hardship, persecution, trials that we go through in serving the Lord. The promise, one day soon, I'm going to be with Jesus in heaven. How glorious that will be. And if that were not glorious enough, then he adds this other thing. And my Father will honor you. My Father, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I can't imagine what that means. Some of us have had some earthly honors now and then. Somebody gives you a prize or you get some kind of reward at work or whatever, and that's always encouraging. But can you imagine when the Father, the author of life, says, come up here, come up here, here's my servant, and he honors you. I I, I can't even 
fathom that, but it will be sufficient reward. One writer pointed out that the most preserved, well-preserved thing in human history are the Egyptian mummies. And he said, if, if you want to preserve your life, then become a, a spiritual mummy and you'll die alone. Uh, but rather, Jesus says, no, if you die to self for his sake, you won't die alone. You'll bear much fruit. And so that's the motivation. Why would you want to go to all the hardship, the hassle of denying self, of dying to self, of living to serve others as you serve Jesus? Well, the answer is because you want to be like your Savior. You want to serve Jesus. You want to follow Jesus. You want to bear much fruit. You want to be with him forever. And then the icing on the cake is the Father will honor you. I just close with the words that are well known of missionary martyr Jim Elliott, died at age 28, taking the gospel to the Aoka Indians. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Father, I pray that you would help me and my brothers and sisters to meditate often on these profound words of the Lord Jesus that we would learn not to love our lives in this world, but to hate them for your sake and the Gospels, that we would die to self so that we might live for Christ and for others, and that you would, by your grace, bear much fruit through us. I ask, too, if there are any here who do not know Jesus in a saving way, that you would show them their need to have their sins forgiven, and that they would come to the cross and receive the gift of eternal life that you offer to all that believe in Jesus. And then, having believed, that they would devote themselves to following you, to serving you, to dying to self. Help us in our homes. Help us in our relationships to learn to follow Jesus in this difficult matter. And our desire is that you would be glorified through uh, our attitudes, our behavior, our values, all that we are and do in Jesus' name. Amen.